Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. Today is the first Trumpless Monday of the rest of your life, but it's not really Trump-free, is it? I, I was, you know, writing this this morning in my newsletter and realized that, you know, he's gone, and it feels like he's been gone for a very, very long time. But you have the dead hand of Donald Trump over the Republican Party, and I think one of the things we've discovered is the Republican Party does not need Donald Trump's Twitter feed to continue to go crazy, does it? Joining me on the podcast this morning, former Florida Congressman David Jolly, a good friend of the podcast. David, good to have you back. Hey, always good to be with you, Charlie. You know, I want to I want to get into uh, stuff that you're doing right now, but I have to say I am just kind of blown away by how fast the Republican Party answered the question um, whether it was going to move into a post-Trump era. Uh, I, I wish I would have come up with this, but Jonathan Chait did. He, he wrote basically compares this to this brief Prague uh, spring uh, instead of glasnost for the Republican Party. The days after January 6 seem instead to be a Prague spring, a brief flowering of dissent and questioning of dogma quickly suppressed by a remorseless crackdown. And that seems to be what's going on, that 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 right now all of the energy in the grassroots Republican Party, if, it, if you had any illusions about where the party is going, I mean, they're they're just Arizona going after Sidney McCain, Jeff Flake and Governor Doug Ducey. And you have uh, you, you have the Texas Republican Party going on to Gab and, you know, going complete QAnon. I mean, so and they're going after Liz Cheney. Well, and and Charlie, the Liz Cheney angle is an interesting one, because if you contrast it with the behavior of Kevin McCarthy, I think it affirms exactly your analysis. Look, we saw after January 6th, Mitch McConnell come out and specifically condemn the president. We saw Liz Cheney vote for uh, an impeachment article. Kevin McCarthy twisted himself in all kinds of knots on the House floor that day saying Donald Trump bears responsibility, but it's not impeachable. However, he got himself out of it. And then look at what happened in the 48, 72 hours that followed. All of the MAGA heat came in even sitting members of the Republican Party, Matt Gates said, you know, these leaders should step down if they're going to do this. And what happened? Kevin McCarthy became the barometer for all this and backpedaled and said, well, it might be Trump, but it's all of us. All of us are responsible for this, giving Republicans permission to blame Democrats. Ultimately, that's what he's doing. He's giving Republicans permission to play the both sidism here. But I think what it tells us, to your point, is that the McConnell and Cheney condemnations, I believe, are kind of the last gasps of the Republican Party that you and I once knew. And Kevin McCarthy's behavior is an affirmation that the party has fully transformed. We've known it, but there was that outside question, what about when Trump leaves? This moment tells us nothing changes. If anything, it accelerates towards more Trumpism, not less. No, it, it does feel exactly like that. It does feel like we're accelerating um, toward more Trumpism. So uh, Kevin McCarthy, with that line that, you know, everybody's guilty. I think everybody across the country has some responsibility. Our friend Windsor Mann um, tweeted this out and, and quoted Hannah Arendt on this. Uh, Where all are guilty, no one is. Confession of collective guilt uh, are the best possible safeguard against the discovery of culprits and the very magnitude of the crime, the best excuse for doing nothing. That's exactly right. Right. I mean, if everybody's guilty, nobody's guilty. And then, if, you know, if, if we all basically, yes, you know, this is society's problem, then then we don't have to focus on 
what was done on January 6th and That's beforehand exactly. by the president. And you don't have to do anything about it, right? Brilliant. Perfectly put. If everyone's guilty, nobody's guilty. And here's the thing. Kevin McCarthy is an ex- exceedingly smart guy. He's also a raw political animal. I served with him. And uh, I'll, I'll share a little bit of stories with you sure. on myself and Kevin uh, that I haven't shared before. You know, John Boehner was stepping down for speaker and Kevin McCarthy just kind of presumed he would be the next speaker. And Boehner, uh, and I would criticize Boehner for this, tried to orchestrate Kevin becoming the next speaker. There was some Tea Party chatter. Daniel Webster from Florida wanted to challenge him. Jim Jordan and the Freedom Caucus were considering something. And Boehner wasn't going to let a vote happen unless it resulted in Kevin getting the, the speakership. So he went around and Scalise at the time went around to, to lobby to move up to leader. And and he didn't quite have the votes. He needed the Freedom Caucus votes or at least the rest of kind of the Tuesday group and guys like me. And so I remember the day he came to me on the floor and said, can I count on you for your vote? And I said, I don't think so, Kevin. And he did a double take as though he was surprised that he just he he was just entitled to it. And I said, Kevin, when are we going to do immigration reform? When are we going to move a tax bill? When are we going to do this? And he's like, just stick with me and you'll see. I said, no, Kevin, you're asking to, to lead the, the body. I want to know what your actual legislative plan is. And he looked at me and he said, are you serious? I said, yeah. He turned around, never spoke to me again, never looked at me again. He presumed because he had given me $5,000 or $10,000 from his pack that that's the way Washington worked. And what I said at the time when he lost the speakership in that moment, and ultimately Paul Ryan uh, was elevated to the speakership, I said then, Kevin McCarthy will be the next Republican speaker because he is such a, a cagey political animal, desperate to be speaker of the House, desperate. I mean, he, this, it is the only thing he thinks about when he wakes up and when he goes to bed. And so what we saw this past week was Kevin's interpretation of where Republican politics are. And I would say, pay attention to Kevin McCarthy's behavior because he understands where the heartbeat is today far better than Mitch McConnell. McConnell might better understand the tactics, but Kevin understands where the heartbeat of the party is. And that's why you're seeing him behave the way he is. So what happens with Liz Cheney? Will they succeed in purging her? You know, she's got it. It comes down to counting the votes. I mean, really, this is when you get behind closed doors in a caucus election, it comes down to counting the votes. So I believe Gates has already called on her to step down. You got to figure the 120 or 30 that voted to um, to decertify the results of the election, at least say 75 percent of those um, would would vote to replace Cheney. They could be looking at a real fight, Uh, but I don't think Cheney's going anywhere. I mean, there's no reason for her to. She's going to try to win this fight. You know, talking about the acceleration of where the party is going, people need to remember that, you know, this is one of the two major political parties and they could easily be back in power in two or four years. And and to have the party go in this direction and and it is an accelerating uh, path to basically look at what happened on January 6th, um, which was the culmination of all the lies and go, okay, um, we're kind of okay with that. We're willing to accept that. It, it, it's it's also the, just a reminder that you know Donald Trump may have been psychologically, um, shall we say, damaged. Uh, a case of 
of arrested development and you know pathologies and everything. But this new gener, this next generation is much more intentional about it. So Donald Trump right. would, would would lie. I mean, look, he had he had some you know you know purpose to it, but also he couldn't help himself. I mean, he was who he was. This next generation of demagogues, I think, is 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 more purposeful. And then, you know, the purposeful dem- demagogues like the Josh Hollies of the world. That's right. You could argue that they are even more they're even more dangerous. And you're seeing this new generation. I was watching, you know, for my sins, watching Sarah Huckabee Sanders video announcing she's running for governor of Arkansas. And it's all culture war stuff. There's no ideas. There's no policy. There's, you know, public policy is just like a bauble. It's like a cudgel. It's just an instrument. And, and they're willing to adopt it and change it, whatever, in in order. And and this, again, is 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 very much purposeful. It's intentional. And this is the new culture of, of one of the two major political parties in this country. That's exactly right. And I, I'm pleased you mentioned Josh Hawley because <clears throat> you're exactly right about a, a populist leader and the ability to cultivate where we are in this moment. And that has been Donald Trump, but we all have seen Donald Trump's fatal flaw on display every single day. And it's that he trips over his own ego. Yeah. In a Josh Hawley, in a Kevin McCarthy, and others, they recognize the, the opportunity they have to harness this remarkable political energy. They have the same ego that Donald Trump has, but they're smart enough not to trip over it every day. And that's what makes them very dangerous. Josh Hawley is not a populist. He wasn't a populist, but he sees that that's where the movement is, that he's trying to take the reins over. But, you know, this comes down, though. It, it all comes back to Donald Trump. And I hate that we're a week after the mm-hmm. the inauguration and it, it still comes down to Donald Trump, at least as to the future of the party, because Donald Trump, as the man, still holds such sway within the party that the future of the party still comes down to decisions that Donald Trump makes in the next year. Does he does he try to primary candidates that weren't with him? Does he stay involved in Republican politics? Does he start a new political party like he has suggested to some that he might? Is he a unifying force? Is he a dividing force? Because the best of the best in Washington right now in the GOP in terms of the most electoral potential, the Josh Hawley's, the Kevin's and and others, they can't get around Donald Trump, even with Donald Trump out of office. They can't get around Donald Trump if Trump still wants to play in the GOP. Well, let's talk about you, because you you raised the idea of, 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 of third parties. And by the way, I'm, I'm really hoping that Donald Trump does go, you know, create the Patriot Party. Please, would he do that? Um, although I don't see why he needs another party since he's got the Republican Party. So Axios is reporting today, as you well know, the former U.S. Representative David Jolly is strongly considering a run for Florida governor in 2022 as an independent. Now, you and I talked about this last time you were on. That's right. Why it matters. Jolly, who repped Florida's 13th district as a Republican from 2014 to 2017 and publicly left the GOP in 2018, has built a brand on cable news as a critic of former President Trump and his allies in Congress. The lingering question, are there enough anti-Trump Republicans to make room for a new party, or will most stay put and hope the GOP eases back from the radical fringe? That is the question, isn't it? So what's the answer? Well, I think it's one of the questions. And Charlie, I can confirm the Axios story. I am strongly considering a run for Florida governor in 2022 as an independent. Uh, there's, I've made no decision about that, but it is under strong consideration and I'm having regular conversations with 
Democrats, Republicans, and independents about this. And I I love how you tease the question with, with that question, are there enough anti-Trump Republicans? Because my Democratic friends are saying, wait, you're going to peel too many Democrats off. And independents are saying, hey, this is exactly what we need. You know, the, the, the part I am most sensitive to in all of this, first of all, from a, from a point of conviction, I think we need independent candidates to emerge to disrupt the duopoly we have today. That's not to say that the two major parties don't have a place. They certainly do. They're, they're the home of convictions, ideological convictions on the left-right spectrum sit within t- t- today's two major parties. But there is a heartbeat of independent politics, consensus-driven politics, problem-solving politics. It's why I'm involved in, in the SAM party that, that we can also talk about. Mm-hmm. But that is the moment that we're living in right now is that heartbeat of kind of the independent new party political movement. And let me address something just head on because it's the one sensitivity I have around this conversation. Republicans will say, oh, he could be a spoiler. Democrats will say, oh, he's going to be a spoiler. I'm not interested in being a spoiler. Mm -hmm. And over the last year, as I looked at whether or not there was a place for me on the ballot in Florida in 2022, I've strongly considered a U.S. Senate run, the seat currently held by Marco Rubio. I've also considered, honestly, since the pandemic set in and our governor's handling of that, I've thought perhaps the better place for me would be in the governor's mansion if I could be successful in a race. As I look at those two options, I think the risk of being a spoiler as an independent in a U.S. Senate race is too great. Mm -hmm. And so while I have not taken that race off the table, I don't want to be the reason that the incumbent Marco Rubio is reelected. And if the best chance for a change in leadership in that U.S. Senate seat is for a traditional binary race between a D and an R, then I don't want to complicate that. As I look at the governor's race, though, in Florida, it's an entirely different equation. The Florida Democrats have not won the governor's mansion in 28 years by the time the next cycle, 22 cycle, comes around. 1994 was the last time Florida elected a Democratic governor. And so I would suggest respectfully to my Democratic friends, if the party goes into the 22 cycle doing the same thing they've always done, the risk of losing both seats and retaining Marco Rubio and Ron DeSantis, the odds are that's exactly what would happen. And so I think the best shot for a change in leadership in the state of Florida may be an independent run that pulls together the disaffected Republicans that we're seeing by voter registration numbers are leaving the party throughout the state of Florida and other states across the country, pulls together Democrats that realize we need to win, right? If we can, we can stand for anything we want to stand for in the state of Florida, but if we don't win, we don't get to make policy. And then the nearly 40% of Florida voters who register is no party affiliation because they want to break that duopoly. So that is, that is my thinking. That is my consideration right now. In any race, uh, you need the moment to meet you halfway. And if, if we are going into the 22 cycle and it looks like an independent run for governor is viable, then I plan to do it. If it looks like it's not, then I won't. Have you done any polling yet? <laughs> Charlie, come on. <laughs> um, we have not deployed a poll yet. Um, there has been a poll prepared, as I understand. Um, but 
we also, I'm well aware of, of the rules around that. And so okay. there's not been a, there's not been a poll deployed yet, but I anticipate there will be some done. And I, I would also say though, I think we know what, what, where the poll is going to come out. An independent candidate would be somewhere in the mid teens. If you asked mm -hmm. a generic question today, and I'm satisfied that that's enough for us to, to make our mid, case upon mid teens. Okay. So running for governor, Ron DeSantis is Ron DeSantis. He, he's, he's a well-known brand now in, in Florida. The Democrats will run as a, would assume that they'll be, you know, we, we know who the Democrats are in Florida as well. So what is the appeal? You are running as what? We, we, we've talked about sort of the politics of spoiler, but what is the issue that you run on saying we need to um, re we need to reject Republican Ron DeSantis? We need to not go with the, the Democrat. So what is what is that sweet spot ideologically, politically for an independent day? Sure. Well, so. Let me let me touch on a couple policy or leadership priorities specific to the state of Florida, but then broadly, let's talk about the political appeal of an independent run and an independent party like like the Serve America movement that I'm in, involved with. In the state of Florida, Charlie, there are real questions of leadership throughout this pandemic. The incumbents handling of uh, both the public health uh implications of the pandemic, as well as the economic implications, getting that balance right. Those are leadership questions. And I don't need to to point a finger at the incumbent to suggest that I personally would handle it very differently than how Ron DeSantis has. I think uh, he tilted it too much towards the economic liberty and not enough towards the public health protection and the safety of all Floridians. I also think as a result of the two-party system in Florida, uh, our public education system is in dramatic need of investment reform. And this leads me to this, this broader conversation about politics and my involvement in the Serve America movement, the SAM party. You and I have talked about uh, perhaps our politics shouldn't be so focused on the ideological spectrum, but instead around values like problem solving, transparency, mm -hmm. accountability. That's exactly what the SAM party is. So I'm the, the national chairman of the SAM party, the Serve America movement. We have run gubernatorial candidates in New York and Connecticut. We're looking at candidates for other offices in Texas, in Maine, in Iowa, in Florida, if I were to be a candidate. And what is fantastic about the SAM party and why I have found myself so excited about where they are is for the first time, there's a political party that does not try to place itself on the left-right ideological spectrum. It's a big tent party, a true big tent party that says, if you're conservative, progressive, moderate, center-right, center-left, come be a part of this coalition. And what binds us together is not our shared ideology on every issue. It's the shared values of problem solving on the hardest policy issues we face, on accountability of our members, of transparency, of democracy protection and democracy reform, of the traditional electoral reforms like gerrymandering reform and open primaries and uh, campaign finance transparency, perhaps even public financing. We recognize that the politics are different from, from East Coast to West Coast, North to South. And the one antidote I share about about this ideological conversation is <clears throat> the the reports of Democratic infighting when they lost the House. And Abigail Spanberger in Virginia said, hey, the mm -hmm. caucus is too progressive. AOC and others said, no, you're too moderate. The problem wasn't their ideologies. Their ideologies reflected their constituency. 
They were they are each correct in their ideologies. The problem is the Democratic Party is not constructed around those shared ideologies. And so where I'm involved with the SAM party, it is to try to address politics in that in that new way, on that new spectrum. And I think as we see independent candidates emerge, I think the next opportunity for a successful political movement, whether it's me or somebody else, whether it's the SAM party or another party, will be around these shared values of of solving the nation's problems, moving the nation forward, not around rigid ideology and partisanship. This is interesting that you would say this because right before we started this, I was reading an essay in in, um, in, in Slate by Will Salatin, who's also been on this podcast, where he's saying that um, you know part of a series of of essays about what we have learned. And one of his points is he said, you know, up until the Trump presidency, I saw politics as a fight between right and left. You know, you see it on the, on that ideological spectrum. He writes today, I don't see it that way anymore. Donald Trump's presidency has exposed a bigger threat, an all-out attack on the principle that facts must be respected. We used to take that principle for granted. Now we must defend it. Politics has become a fight between those who are willing to respect evidence and those who aren't. And I guess I would add to this something you and I have talked about before, the the respect for liberal democracy, you know, constitutional uh, democracy, as well as, as you point out, uh, you know, really addressing um, uh, public policy issues and, and solving problems so that instead of being stuck on this axis of right versus left, you know, maybe it's a maybe it's a vertical axis of up versus down. And, and maybe after all of this, this is what people are going to look for, saying that they're just kind of sick at this uh, this tribalized sort of stasis we're in. And, and Charlie, imagine what that opens up for our public policy, right? That, that column is exactly right. I think the Trump era has reset us and refocused us on fact-based policy, truth-based policy, but also this notion that we've got to break up the, the duopoly we currently sit in. And look, God bless your traditional Republicans who believe in those traditional Republican principles. God bless Democrats who are coming off great victories, right? That, that's what I mean. There's a there's a good place for them. They're a home for for certain ideological convictions. But if you subscribe to what you just said, look at what that opens up for public policy specifically. On education, it means you can invest more money in public education and pay public school teachers more. You can treat them as the heroes they are while also providing choice to parents. On immigration, you can pursue security at the border while also recognizing a pathway to to citizenship and to legal status for people on guns. You can protect the Second Amendment, but recognize it's better protected through greater regulation. And oh, by the way, so is public safety. The way to protect lawful gun ownership and protect people from school shootings is through greater regulation, not less. You can on healthcare. You can say we need a public option, but we need a robust private option as well. The problem is, the two parties have gotten to a point where they can't admit that the policy solutions require considerations of competing and contrasting policy solutions. They can't. They're too wedded, and and that's fine if that's where your politics and your ideology are. God bless you. Then that's your home. But I believe there are a majority of Americans, and in my case, in the state of Florida, who would say. I think what Jolly's saying makes more sense to me than what I'm hearing from the red team and the blue team right now. Yeah, the red team and the blue team, you have to buy the whole bundle. It's like cable, you have to buy all of it. You, you, right. What I think most people actually think of, of politics as more of a buffet. So let's go back to the what's going on with the Republican Party. And I have some, another question about Florida politics. 
I am, I, you know, we, we started off this conversation talking about the acceleration of the Republican Party toward crazy. And, <laughs> and I, I, th I think we are seeing this. I mean, I look at the Texas Republican Party. You know, they, they have now, uh, they tweeted out over the weekend that they are now on Gab. Now, for people who aren't familiar, Gab is a, a, a website that has been, um, uh, has been the, the refuge of neo-Nazis, other assorted bigots, extremists. Uh, it has been banned in the past because, in, in fact, it has, it has fomented violence. Texas GOP tweeted, we are on Gab. And then they have the, in their tweet, they have the slogan, we are the storm, which is straight up undiluted QAnon stuff. And then you have the Hawaii GOP saying we should make it clear that the people who believe QAnon, you know, are motivated by sincere and deep love for America, patriotism and love of country. And they shouldn't be ridiculed. I'm, I'm sorry. These are people who believe there's this global child sex trafficking ring and the Democrats, you know, are members of a group that kill and eat their victims in order to drink their blood. Uh, I'm, right. I'm sorry. This is not this is not motivated by love of country. And then, of course, you saw what happened in Arizona where they decided to spend the weekend condemning Cindy McCain, who's a private citizen, uh, the widow of John McCain, uh, the uh, former Senator Jeff Flake and Doug Ducey. Now, what's interesting to me about that is what was Doug Ducey's crime? I mean, for people who go, well, Cindy McCain endorsed Joe Biden, Jeff Flake endorsed Joe Biden. So, yes, they've they've committed a terrible political sin. You know, here's 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 a question for the class. What was Doug Ducey's great political sin? Because great he supported point. Trump. And you know what it was? He did his job. He certified yeah. the election results. He did his job. He followed the law. He didn't try to illegally overturn a legitimate free and fair election. And for that, in this Republican Party, he's being condemned. So That's right. uh, not a good omen. No, I, and perfectly well put, Charlie. And so given that, right, given that he's been condemned for otherwise exercising his constitutional responsibilities, you then have to ask, okay, what what are we seeing in the behavior of those parties and in their affirmation of, of these organizations, these conspiracy groups, and, and condemning people who are actually doing their job? And, and this gets very serious, I think, and relates directly to the events of January 6th. Let's talk about, uh, I'm sorry, did I interrupt you there? Been... Well, so here's, here's what I was going to say about that. We, we have a violent political movement here in the United States that has found home in the Republican Party. It is the vast minority, statistically a, a, a very small minority, but it's a dangerous minority, right? It, taken to its fruition, it, it is reminiscent of Oklahoma City in the, in the 1990s. Yeah. Some of what we saw, the behavior, the violence we saw in the Capitol, takes you right to that place. And and the responsibility of, of all Americans, of both parties, of the Republican Party today, is not just to condemn the violence. It's to say to, to those that wish to engage in it, you're not welcome in our party. You're not welcome here. You must leave. And, and instead of seeing that and hearing that, what some of these conspiracy groups and then their more radicalized people are hearing when the Arizona GOP and the Hawaii GOP and all that make their make their statements, they're still seeing a home, right? It's not that they get a full seat at the table, but they're able to come in the side door and hang out within the party. That's what they're hearing when they see the moves by the Arizona party. 
Well, and they're also allowed to intimidate uh, the, the party. Look, That's if, there right. was, if there was genuine moral leadership in the party, you would have those leaders speaking out the, in the way that, that say, William F. Buckley did back in the 1960s and say, you know, be gone. You, 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 don't, you don't have a play here. Uh, you don't have a place here. We are not going to be either intimidated or influenced by you. We don't want to be associated with you. But that's not where we're at here. So within a couple of weeks, we're going to see um, the Senate trial of Donald Trump again. I think we know how it's going to finish out, um, how it's going to end. Uh, any any hopes that the Republican Party would see this as a, as, as, as a moment to make an historical stand in favor of the Constitution or even as a political off-ramp? That's not likely to happen. The evidence is going to be absolutely overwhelming that the president um, and his big lie incited an attempt uh, to overthrow the government, to stop the counting of the votes. And yet um, the vast majority of Republicans will vote to uh, acquit uh, Donald Trump, who will see this as exoneration. So since we've been talking about Florida politics, you saw uh, Marco Rubio over the weekend, and he's describing the whole thing as stupid. Let me play about a one-minute soundbite from from uh, Florida Senator Marco Rubio. Well, first of all, I think the trial is stupid. Uh, I think it's counterproductive. We already have a flaming fire in this country, and it's like taking a bunch of gasoline and pouring it on top of the fire. Uh, second, um, and I look back at the time, for example, Richard Nixon, who had clearly committed crimes and wrongdoing. And uh, in hindsight, I think we would all agree that President Ford's pardon was important for the country to be able to move forward. And history held Richard Nixon quite accountable for, for what he did as a result. In terms of the rules, I think the president's entitled to due process. I think he's entitled to have a defense. I think he's entitled to present you know, testimony and evidence uh, if necessary. And, you know, the House doesn't have much of a record of witnesses and so forth because they frankly rammed it through very quickly. So I, I think obviously fairness is important no matter who it is we're talking about. But I just want to repeat, I think this is going to be really bad for the country. Uh, it's going to take us not just is it going to keep us from focusing on really important things, but it's also just going to stir it up even more and make it even harder to get things done moving forward. So, David Jolly, <laughs> you want to take a whack at all of that? Yeah, Marco Rubio's condemnation should have been directed at one person, Donald Trump. Richard Nixon was charged with obstruction of justice, not with an insurrection uh, to incite violence against the United States of America, which is what Donald Trump has been impeached for. And if Marco Rubio cared about the sanctity of the Senate and the House and our Constitution and the presidency itself, Marco Rubio should have spent yesterday announcing that he will vote to convict Donald Trump so he can no longer run for public office or ever hold any position of public trust in the United States again. That's what Marco Rubio should be doing. But Marco Rubio has demonstrated to the people of Florida that he's not capable of that type of leadership, and the nation knows that. And it's why he's become an embarrassment in the Sunshine State and on the national stage as well. And that's how I feel about that, Charlie. No, I mean, just on, 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 a, on a quibble point, I mean, because, there, because there's, 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 so, there's so much. I have a question for you on Marco Rubio just coming up in a minute here. Sure, so, sure. Hold that thought. Uh, you know, talking about they, you know, they rammed it through without any witnesses. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't Marco Rubio vote against hearing any witnesses in the first impeachment? Of course trial? he did. So maybe he ought to take a seat on all of this. But what's fascinating to me, listening to all of that, is it's got a certain plausibility. We we don't want to divide the country, but as if it is the trial that is the That's divisive right. thing, not the president's behavior. Like you know, I know that our our attention spans are short, but. It wasn't that long ago that the Capitol was under siege by a violent armed mob that was trying to stop 
the Congress of the United States from performing a fundamental constitutional duty that the president of the United States wanted this mob uh, to do what he had failed to do in every other venue, uh, legislative courts, whatever, um, to which was to overturn the election, to hold on to power. And every single day we are finding out how serious his attempts to corrupt this election, calling and bullying the secretary of state in Georgia. Now we're finding out that he was uh, contemplating um, installing a toady at the Department of Justice to have the Department of Justice uh, try to overturn the election in Georgia or get the Supreme Court to overturn the justice. We're finding out that he had a plan to install um, this completely unqualified political hack as the head of the CIA. What was that all about? So the 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 magnitude of this is becoming clearer and clearer that you really did have the president of the United States attempting to use his power and his influence, including violence, to overturn an election. And yet we're supposed to believe that, yes, the trial, the holding, the the process of holding him accountable, that's what's dividing the country. I mean, that's the argument that's right. that Marco Rubio is trying to make. That's right, which which is almost. Um, well, look, I, I've made my comments about Marco yeah, okay. Rubio. Let, okay, let well, me then, let me yeah. but let me frame the impeachment, because yeah. very importantly, what Marco Rubio and other Republicans should be recognizing is the prosecutorial case. Donald Trump laid the predicate, right? Everything you just said about contesting the election and telling everybody the election was a fraud and it had been stolen. He laid the, the predicate. He set the narrative from, from November 3rd on. Then he issued the invitation and he said, come to Washington on January 6th, a date that otherwise none of these activists would have known about or cared about, right? None of us could have said right. what day the Electoral College gets confirmed. Right. But it was because Donald Trump issued the invitation, said, come to Washington, physically be here. And then he speaks to the crowd and he issues the charge and says, go to the Capitol. I'll be with you. Be strong. Don't be weak. That is the elements of the case against Donald Trump. And constitutionally speaking, the the Constitution clearly contemplated being able to try a president who has left office when it specifically laid out the ability of a Senate to penalize, to to assess a penalty for conviction. And that is that is the question before the chamber. It is not removal. It is a question of whether or not Donald Trump should be able to hold office again. That is an independent question of whether or not Donald Trump's in office right now. Marco Rubio's head fake suggesting this is divisive is nothing more than the typical Ted Cruz, Kevin McCarthy, Republican narrative for people who want to try to hold power and gain power within today's Republican Party. You know, I don't know that there's a good answer to this question, but I think back to 2016, Marco Rubio, leading candidate for president, Ted Cruz, leading candidate for president. Lindsey Graham, not a leading candidate, but a candidate for president, a very independent. And four or five years later, these guys are all broken. I mean, it feels like losing to Donald Trump in that primary broke something inside, or maybe you just simply exposed something. Maybe just cracked them open and found out that that all that was there was this, you know, naked puling ambition that that would say and do anything. Because yeah. these guys are so diminished from what they portrayed themselves as being when they wanted to be president. You know, there was a statement Lindsey Graham made early on that I think has been the most truthful statement <laughs> Lindsey Graham's ever said. But I, I'm going to use it to, as it relates to his colleagues in the Senate as well. Early on, when Lindsey Graham was confronted with, well, you said all these things about Trump, but now you're saying you're going to work with him. He said, 
yeah, the guy beat me. He beat me bad. Mm-hmm. And he showed me that the Republican Party wants him, not me. So my job is to listen to that. At least that's mm-hmm. an honest answer as to why someone would completely shift their politics. And the answer was, look, the party, I was out of step with the party. The party wants me in this direction and set aside how strong my personal convictions are or not. My job is to advance the interests of the party collectively. It's essentially what Graham was saying. If Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and, and the likes of those had said that, had had that moment, had, had acknowledged that the party's gone in a different direction than I wanted to take it and I lost, but I'm a good foot soldier and I'm going to try to take it in that direction. Instead, the reason Rubio and Cruz and these others look so uh, silly and embarrassing right now is because we see what they're doing and they're not willing to acknowledge or see it themselves. And it's the greatest humiliation of all for these guys. One day they're going to realize it. Okay, so here's here's my question, David. It it, it, it it seems like Marco Rubio's big concern right now is not to have a primary challenge from Ivanka Trump. Um, <laughs> I mean, let's just start with this. First of all, I mean, the guy has been such a, you know, loyal toe licker all along why is Trump world dissatisfied with him? What has he done? I mean, it's it's like if, if you dial it up to 100 in terms of the sycophancy, it's just not enough for them. Yeah, look, the, the Florida narrative on Rubio is an interesting one. I mean, yeah. you know, when he emerged, he came out as I think it was on Time magazine or National Review, the next Republican president. I I've always given Rubio the Republican I, savior. Remember, he savior, was the savior. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I've always given Rubio great credit for using all of his political capital to try and solve immigration. I, I respect Rubio for doing that. And then what happened is when when he got his wings clipped on that really by the right wing who said, yep. how dare you? accommodate mm-hmm. um, undocumented individuals. He's never been the same and and he's never found his footing. And then as he emerged in the intelligence community, that might have been a place for him to quietly lead on moments of national security. But his presidential loss clipped his wings again. And he's just kind of been this wounded animal in Florida politics. And once you get that reputation, it's it's hard to get away from it. So, look, I, you're right. He's done everything Trump has asked him. He's done everything Ivanka asked him. I don't know if you remember the photos early on of him walking down the Capitol steps to meet Ivanka, getting out of the car and bring her in. Um, he's done everything he can. This goes back to Trump himself and his ego and that of his family. Trump doesn't care what you've done for him. He doesn't care what those people on January 6th care about. He just wants people to serve his interest. And his interest is in having his daughter elected to something. He'll throw Rubio to the curb just as quickly as he did during the debates of 2016. And unfortunately, what we're going to watch is Rubio scramble to try to say, please, please, sir, give me another. And it Look, we get to watch that going into into 22, I guess, into Rubio's reelection, should he declare. The Democrats in Florida have an opportunity. As I mentioned, you know, I haven't I haven't completely ruled out the Senate race, but mm. the last thing I'm going to do as an independent candidate in Florida is be a spoiler that ensures he's reelected. So you had a very interesting comment I, I, I see in the Axios article about uh, this, the, the new party and the conversation about it, that, that you say that it has increased dramatically since January 6th. 
that that in fact you know and in in Florida there've been a number of news reports about people who have dropped their Republican affiliation moving right. m- moving over and so you know you described it as you know the, right now the Republican Party is the party of Matt Gates and Jim Jordan and the QAnon woman from Georgia now the greater <laughs> that disruption the greater the chance for a third party to emerge so that's a very interesting point because you when you and I talked about this last time you you were you were interested but but not really as committed as you sound right now so January 6th is is, is that really uh, do you think that we're going to look back on that as, as, a, as a turning point? I do. I, I think January 6th gets worse and worse in the eyes of history. And even if you just look at the impeachment, again, Andrew Johnson was impeached for firing a war secretary. Nixon faced it for obstruction, Clinton for perjury. This was incitement to commit violence or, or incitement of insurrection against the United States. So in historical terms, the events of January 2020 are going to stand out by themselves as a dark, dark moment in American history tied to a an impeachment of a president and then attrition of voters from the incumbent president's party. So, Charlie, by example, over 2000 Republicans in the Tampa area alone in one week after January 6th left. We've hmm. seen similar deregistration numbers across the country as well, and they're not choosing the Democratic Party. And, you know, in terms of my own political calculus, I had, as I've thought through this around the holidays, one of my very close friends and political advisors, I, my, the question is always viability around an independent run, around a new party, mm-hmm. right? We wrestle with that at the Serve America movement at SAM. You know, we, we are off the ground and running and we have great candidates, but you're always wrestling with viability. And my friend said, what's going to change between now and 2022 that would make an independent run more viable? Well, that was December. Mm-hmm. January 6th happened. We're seeing deregistrations from Republicans. At the Serve America movement, our traffic online is up over a thousand percent since the events of January 6th and going through the inauguration. People are looking for a different answer right now. And again, it's not it's not to condemn the true convictions of both parties, right? I it's it's the new party movement and independent candidacy isn't for everybody, and that's okay. But the old baseball analogy, if you get a hit one out of every three times, you're in the Hall of Fame. An independent run, a new party run, just needs to be competitive with the two major parties so that American voters, so that the cultural conversation can begin to be had, that maybe there's a a different way that I should at least consider. One well, that focuses and, and, in on consensus and policymaking. And, and, and as the Republican Party becomes more crazy, I think that the interest in in a third way is going to be in, intensifying. While you and I were speaking, uh, Ohio Senator Rob Portman has announced that he is not running for re-election, which comes as a pretty big surprise, I think, doesn't it? I mean, that he's not running. Yeah. I mean, so Pat, Pat Toomey is not running. Rob Portman is not running. Now, that means that they potentially could be more uh, more independent. But it also suggests that a lot of the the more, um, should we say, reasonable Republicans have decided that, okay, you know, it's just not worth it. And so who knows who they're going to be replaced with? Yeah, Charlie, the party we knew is gone and it's not coming back. No, see, I think that's one of the things that kind of amazingly in a very short period of time, I think that's that's what we've learned um, over the last month, that it that is not coming back. There was that brief window where you started to think, oh, my goodness, you know, Liz Cheney is saying this. Look what look what uh, Mitch McConnell is saying this. But I do think, unfortunately, that is the sort of the, the the brief false prog spring, and we are just back to something that may even be uglier than what we had before. David Jolly, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. We appreciate it very much. Hey, great to be with you. Thank you, Charlie.
And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.